Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So uh, we are the Radio Rejects. I'm Phoebe. This is... I'm Ari. Hi. I'm Mara. Hi, I'm NK. And the universe brought us together because we make art using audio mainly, and we care about tearing down oppressive systems and ideas. So before we had actually met, we unknowingly crossed paths at Allied Media Conference, which is in Detroit, and it's a conference where folks have been gathering for decades to talk about making transformative media, which is making stories that intend to shape change, change culture, and change ourselves. Um, another thing you should know about us is we are actually rejects. We've been doing our own thing outside of the white neoliberal public radio machine. And we've fucked around with lesbian separatism, for real. <laughs> um, we met, uh, we actually were all rejected from Ragdale when we happened to be together. And so we decided to, to do our own residency. There's like our, Audrey Lord is like the... Um, patron saint of our residency. That's That was the logo. Um, and so, yeah, we've been doing our own thing. Um, and we bring together our backgrounds in organizing, education, public programming, the literary world, punk cover bands, all kinds of things. And um, we make sound art and narrative radio pieces. Collectively, our work critiques the concept of universal narratives and values experimentation. So NK and I um, have a podcast called Bitch Face. And, <laughs> thank you. And we have a new show coming out with Mermaid Palace. Um, Ari is a new Voices Scholar and is a youth radio instructor here in Chicago, which is really hard. So. I'm really glad that she does it for all of us. And um, she produces pieces for Chirp Radio. Shout out Chirp Radio. Um, her SoundCloud is a trove of really awesome pieces, so you should check it out. And um, Mara lives in New Orleans and is a producer and is actually going to win an award tonight for their story about gender and Mardi Gras. And uh, we are actually friends. <laughs> okay. Lost my voice from so much fun this weekend. Um, we wanted to uh, bring you something to just kind of warm your ears and to bring you into your body and um, into a listening space. And this is produced by me and edited by all of us. And uh, it, it has voices, it features voices from a group of women and queers that I meet up with in Chicago. Call, we call ourselves Radio Coven. We, whenever there's like cool rad people in town, they'll drop in. And um, yeah, we invite you to close your eyes or focus on a neutral point in the room and um, and feel. Thank you. Imagine you are listening with every inch of you. Every inch of you from the top of your head to the tips of your toes, every nerve ending on your grandest organ are not nerve endings, but ears. Let your body give you the answers your ears ask. Can you feel a coolness in your belly when you listen to the waves of the ocean? Where in your body do you feel it? And what does it sound like? A sigh of relief when ending a long, hard day. The sheet's coolness when entering your bed. The moment before you open the door to meet your love. 
Do they tingle in your arms? Do they warm your chest? Do they boil your blood? Breathe in the sounds and voices you will hear today. Breathe them into your open mouth, down your throat and into your guts, past your pelvis and beneath your knees. The sound is pooling at your feet and rising up again. We ask you, where do you feel what you're hearing? Your body is listening. What is it telling you? Um, the premise for this panel is Sweaty Concepts, um, which is described by the writer Sarah Ahmed in her 2016 book, Living a Feminist Life. Um, sweaty Concepts is inspired, in Living a Feminist Life, Ahmed is inspired by your favorite black lesbian feminist poet and ours, Audre Lorde, um, whose writing and poetic descriptions, she says, illustrate the difficulty of being a black queer woman existing inside white cis-hetero patriarchy. Ahmed is not only calling attention to what the poet wrote, that is the content, but the way she wrote it. It was how she wrote that captured and conveyed that difficult experience. A sweaty concept it is, a is a description of the world, a point of view. It exists when the dominant culture hasn't developed language for your experience or point of view, because it hasn't had to. Or maybe because the dominant culture doesn't even notice or see our experiences. Um, as writers and artists, as poets and radio producers, we can come up with sweaty concepts to create understanding. To create a sweaty concept is to invent language. So Ahmed's talking about poetry. We are obviously applying this to radio. In radio and other audio work, instead of looking for new language, we might look to queer, black and brown, disabled, trans, and other marginalized producers for evidence of sweaty story structure or a sweaty use of sound. We're saying sweaty because these techniques ask us as listeners to do more work than we might ordinarily do. Sweaty concepts are the anti-explanatory comma. We're saying sweaty because these techniques might make us a little nervous or uncomfortable. And sometimes the work we're being asked to do is sit in that discomfort, to temporarily inhabit the difficulty of the producer's point of view. We have a couple of examples to further illustrate what we mean. The first one um, is a piece we listened to in the, on the Radio Rejects, the first annual Radio Rejects residency that Phoebe mentioned. It's called EMDR. It's by a producer and artist named James T. Green. Uh, it was first on this show called Constellations that we really like. Constellations, uh, short experimental audio pieces, usually followed by an interview with the artist about the piece. So it's about four minutes long. We're, we'll play all of it. And as you're listening, we want you to pay attention to any sensations that come up in your body, um, because part of what we're going to do together for the rest of the session is listen really carefully in order to pin try and pinpoint the choices that the artist is making to evoke the sensations that you feel. I've always felt this need for control. 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 Today we, uh... I've always felt this need. I basically it was just like, hey. So I realized that I have this issue where I'm always not only seeking your approval, but you your approval, but also like my problem with uh, utilizing like deflection. I've always felt this need for control. I've always felt this need for control. So, like, 
I've always felt this need for control. 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 I've always felt this need. for control I've always felt this need for control I've always felt this need for control like I don't want the same mistakes that I feel like I've learned from my family and myself like you don't want to pass that down yeah well even that's pressure on your kid you know what I mean like and because, like, you could do everything different from the way your parents did you, but your kid could still turn out the same way. You know what I mean? Like, there's really no guarantee for any of it. I mean, like, there's nothing you can do about it. Like, your kid's probably going to have weight issues. You know what I mean? Like, that's just genetic. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. I've always felt this need for, for control. I've always felt this need 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 for control. I've always need a breath afterwards. Um, every time I hear this piece, we've listened to it a lot of times together. This is the second time this weekend I'm hearing it. I always have a really sweaty listening experience. Um, some of the things that we are really into about it is just the repetition of the phrase, of course. I've always had this need for control, pulling you into the experience of the artist. All those really juicy pauses. Um, the intimate sounds of the body, the choking sounds, the si- I love the sighing is included at the end, also invoking a bodily response in us, the listeners, and the repetition of sound and language creating meanings. The more times we hear the phrase, the less in control we feel ourselves to be. And there's no clear narrative, like in poetry, um, that abstraction leaves room for many interpretations and also allows for feeling and sensation to be the primary way that we experience the work. In this case, it works because we, we too feel the need for control by the end. So artistic and experimental works like this one provide a lot of examples of sweaty concepts, but we also find sweaty concepts in work that generally wouldn't be considered experimental. Like in this clip from Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo, reported by Connie Walker. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it. Um, Connie Walker is an indigenous woman, a Cree woman, and in this clip, she's, the, we're just going to play a little bit of it. Um, the context is, <clears throat> excuse me, she's helping a family find their sister after their sister was taken by child welfare workers in the 1970s and adopted in the U.S. Cleo's sisters believe that, that their sister was murdered while trying to hitchhike back, hitchhike back home to Saskatchewan. April and I talk for about 20 minutes more about her childhood, about Annette, her older sister who was adopted into the same family, and about her desire to find Cleo. And so um, if we were to come out and come out, could we come and spend some time with you? That'd be awesome. Anything I can do, you know, to get Cleo's ashes home, you know. I want to hear more of April's story, but I hang up the phone feeling quite conflicted. 
April is keen to participate in the podcast, eager actually. She wants to help in this search for Cleo, and even says she has some documents that might have some clues about her. But April was also incredibly open about her ongoing struggles. And I wonder, would being involved in this process be a good thing for her? Is that even our decision to make? I know that finding Cleo is so important to her family, and this family's story deserves to be told, but I don't want to make life more difficult for any of them. We talk to April again, and she says that her parents have some concerns, and asks that we talk to them too. April is actually the only Semeganus kid who still has a relationship with her adoptive parents. Okay, so what we're hearing in this clip is Walker explaining the way that she prioritizes the people in the story and their experience while they're participating. Which we aren't suggesting is that that consideration is in itself unusual or sweaty, but we're interested in the fact that she includes this, these moments, a few times in the overall narrative. And we would say that those moments, when the audience is also asked to consider what it means to consume the stories of indigenous or First Nation subjects, is what makes the story more valuable and a sweaty listening experience. So the work doesn't need to be abstract or experimental to be an example of a sweaty concept. A sweaty concept can also show up as uh, choices like this, where we're brought into Walker's discomfort with the power dynamic implicit in reporting and in reporting's potential to re-traumatize. On this, the provocation from uh, Irissa Apantaku and Jenny Casas, um, Friday, where are we, um, <laughs> speaks exactly to this. Uh, shout out to that provocation, and yeah. that's in the vein of exactly what we're talking about and the sweatiness of the kind of reporting um, and thinking about that. Yeah, thanks for saying that, yeah. Okay, so the rest of this session, we're going to be breaking into small groups, and we're going to like play some different works that then you'll discuss. And so in order to get you into small groups and kind of like y'all can get to know each other a little bit, we have a little bit of a game we're going to play for like five minutes. There's like these cards on the ground under your seat. And um, the game is that you walk around and meet people, um, try to find people that possess the qualities in the squares on the card. So, or, you know, maybe they're just like, we'll lead you to some discussions so you can get to know some people that you can then get into groups with. So there's like these like little pods of chairs all over the room. So you'll want to like walk around, meet people, and then find your group um, that you'll be discussing and listening with. Yeah, it's Gadio Bingo time. Let's go. Yes, <laughs> we. <laughs> All right, y'all, find your seats. Find your seats with your new friends. Okay, so did you all find, you're in groups of like five, six people, your new friends. All right, so a few reminders before we kick off our listening and chatting sesh. This session does center the perspectives of people of color, uh, femmes, people with disabilities, trans people, and queers. If this doesn't describe you, just please join respectfully and with a willingness to listen and learn. If you are someone that's super comfortable chatting in groups, that's awesome. Uh, use that superpower to harness other people's voices too to bring them into the conversation. And we recognize it's challenging to have these conversations. We actually really want we want to be having challenging conversations. And uh, we want you to assume best intentions and to ask questions about those intentions. Um, we also, part of our core value and philosophy is physical and auditory exclamations. Uh, so also to just throw that out there at you. <laughs> and um, in the most anti-authoritarian way, um, we also want to remind you that you are the authorities. Uh, your voice and body matter. Our voices and bodies matter. And um, yeah, <laughs> we are the authorities on how we think and feel. Thank you, Ari. Yeah. Okay, so the first, and so we, we have three different pieces we're going to listen to. Mo they're clips, so we'll talk about like where they fall in the, um, in the entirety of the piece. And then we're going to have like five minutes of group discussion among your groups after, and then after all of that, we'll bring it into a big group discussion. So the first piece is from uh, Mei Mei's song. 
which was produced by Demay Roberts um, in 1989. It's a story about her mother. And she opens it by describing the way that her mother speaks with a Taiwanese accent and says that while many people in the US did not understand her mother, she understands everything, the words, that is, of her mother. And so this is like a four-minute clip from near the beginning of about a 30-minute piece. And so while you're listening to this clip, um, we want to pay attention to the way she uses sound in place of words to add subtext and to create emotional resonance. So questions that, that we're thinking about is, again, what choices do you hear? and what emotions are evoked by the editing and sound design. I'm the only human being on this earth who understands everything my mother says in English. The subtleties, the undertones, the quotation marks that underlie her words. People may get every other word, but I hear everything. They may think she's cute when she's angry, sweet when she's manipulative, simple when she is truly devastated. But I understand everything. The words, that is. Why are your fingers so crooked? Your fingers so crooked. I asked that once. Her hands are strong and beautiful with long fingernails, but she can never completely straighten her fingers. My real parents sold me. They were poor. I was two years old in Chinese age, one year old in American time. I was sold twice. Twice I was sold. The first parents were not unkind, were not loving, were not unkind. Again, I was sold. Xinbua in Taiwanese. Xinbua, adopted daughter-in-law, sold to marry the son in the family. I was 12. Xinbua. What is your name? I can't do Xinbua. I just want to be they sold her. She's never felt secure, never loved, never happy. She could never show love the way I saw on TV with American families, with words, with physical affection. The only thing I ever wanted to hear from her was, Honey, you're beautiful, and I'm proud of you. I never heard those words. No one said those words to her when she was growing up. Of course, I can never say those words to her. And I can never show love in the ways that matter to her with a sense of devotion, to act as the dutiful Taiwanese daughter. That was not part of me. She beat me. If the clothes were not clean, she beat me. Steal chopsticks. He bought chopsticks. She put my hand in between and squeezed and squeezed. My fingers. Why are my fingers so crooked? I don't have a feel. Just I don't care. Nothing I can do about it. Mimi, it's not your time yet. Not your time. Mimi. Yes, can I wake up? I'm Shilishtun. When I was growing up, I used to listen. Actually, I used to not listen to my mother's Taiwanese opera records. The noise filled the house. It was an embarrassing sound for me, especially when she sang along. The banging of gongs, clanging of instruments, really irritated me. Quang quang. That's what Daddy called it. Quang quang. I used to think it was a Taiwanese word for opera, but it means loud noises, disruptions. Loud noises. There was always the sound of battles in our house. The clash of cultures between my Taiwanese mother and my Oklahoma country boy father was not quiet. Later, my mother and I would clash, would fight. We talk to Chinese, you don't, you don't understand. Talk to Taiwanese, you don't understand. And I came to understand that the clanging of the opera was not just clanging. It was the sound of battle, a call for warriors to come to the fight. 
So now if you want to discuss in your groups and feel free to like talk about these questions or other things that came up for you, but what choices do you hear and what emotions are evoked by the editing and sound design? I don't know if that's right, but her, when it was clips of her mother, she would distort it or play something over it as well. And that made me... You know, struggle to understand, but that's the point. Only you know, I mean, she can really understand it. She knows me so much. For me, it was like the, at the moment where she gets the answer. Steel chopsticks. He bought you chopsticks. She put my hand in between and squeezed and squeezed my fingers. Why are my fingers so crooked? It expressed something that. I would like to be able to express in sound, which is that she's reliving the memory because she has this, the, the why are your hands so crooked exists like we're introduced to that memory and then the answer comes again and we relive the memory with her. So it's her memory and then it's our memory of her memory. So that kind of layering, I think, was brilliant in this piece. I feel like I'm still processing it. <laughs> yeah, it was, I found myself thinking about like, trying to consider how many pitch meetings she had to go through <laughs> to get it made, you know? Especially at that time when like the equipment was so expensive that you couldn't just do it like rogue style, you know? It's like, how, how many arguments did she have to make to get someone to say yes to that? I loved, I loved hearing that. Like, that'll always resonate, you know, like, that'll always resonate with, with the human experience. Of, like, why are you like this? What, what is this? What is this part of you? And there's something behind it to explain it. Oftentimes. So we're about to listen to another clip. The next piece that we're going to hear a little a bit of, it's called The Toilets at Home Are All Gender Neutral. Um, this is a piece by Arlie Adlington. He's a freelance audio producer based in London. The, this piece explores the feelings and experiences of being trans. The clip we're going to play starts a few minutes into the piece. What you start hearing is this rhythmic um, it's a rhythmic protocol, how to use a bathroom as a trans or gender non-conforming person, how to survive the impact of the anxiety of that experience. The clip we're going to play is about five minutes long, and these are the questions that we'd like you to focus on. Describe the sound design, considering your physical response. What is the conversation between the sound design and the narrative conflict? Where were you feeling most challenged by this piece? Did you feel challenged by this piece? When people stare, don't turn away. Let them get their staring done, done, done. Don't turn away. So they can reach a decision quickly about whether they're going to challenge you. If you can let them stare at you and act like you're not aware of anything weird, 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 they're way more likely to decide you're allowed to stay. If someone isn't satisfied that they've understood your gender before you lock the door, sometimes they'll stand outside the cubicle and wait for you. You just have to power through, power through, power, power through. You just have to power through, power through, power, power through. You just have to power through, power through, power, power through. Now carry on with whatever you were doing before you needed a piss. And try to piece back together the bit of yourself you just hammered away. When you go into public toilets, it is stressful worrying how other people are going to react to you being in there. But the worst thing is actually what it makes you do to yourself. When the majority of people look at you and don't see your gender how it feels to you inside, you have to work really hard to hold on to your sense of self. It's like you know who you are, but all day you get treated like you're someone else. That takes mental effort to fight off. And for me, that's the more stressful thing about public toilets. 
It's like, I'm just trying to live my life, and suddenly I have to piss, and I need people to misgender me so I don't get any hassle. I go into the toilet, hoping people will think my gender is something different to how I want them to see it the whole rest of the time. And when it all goes fine, it's like, great, I didn't get harassed. But also I've just been reminded that people don't see me the way I feel inside. And that chips away at you. Going for a piss should be the simplest thing in the world, but instead it becomes this massive head fuck. And I'm actually lucky. I'm lucky that a head fuck and a bit of hassle is the worst I get. It's just going to the toilet. Everyone has to go to the toilet. Okay, this is a story that I never told anyone before. Okay, so I was on my way to work on the train. It was really, it was really busy. I think it was the summer. I remember it was sunny and it was hot, and I only had on a t-shirt. And it was a really packed train. Like everyone was quite, like not completely squashed in together, but quite packed, crowded train. And I just remember like this really strong feeling coming over me that I feel like my, the sacredness of my self and my gender is like shining out of me. Like I feel like everyone on this train can just see it like I'm glowing. And I just felt I felt so much like myself, like how I really feel about myself inside. And I felt, I guess the unusual thing was I, just, I felt like it was obvious to everyone. I felt like everyone on this train can see it. Then I had this feeling like I could see in my mind, like all of London, like I, like I could look down from above, down onto the whole city, and I, it was like every trans person walking around the city. I felt like there's like a glow, like a light shining out of them, and I felt like I could see them walking around the city, like little glowing balls of light. So we're again, we're going to give you about five minutes to discuss. We welcome you to use these questions as your guide. <laughs> I want to like more of it. Like, I just, um, like, I feel like hungry for it. I feel like, I don't know, like I want to go and like find out if there's more of it or like another piece that this person has done because it feels very sort of like sweaty in the sense that you're kind of like inhabiting this person's body and the sound for, you know, however many minutes that was. Don't turn away. Let them get their steering done. done. Yeah, there's something about the driving beat at the beginning that like, obviously makes it feel like a song, <laughs> um, but like also like the way that a song gets inside of you um, and the way that like maybe a podcast doesn't get inside you in the same way. Like it gets inside your ears, but not inside of your, like the rhythm of you. You just have to power through, power through, power, power through. You just. I also love the length of the scoring of the first part because at first you're like, whoa, this is like a lot, and then you start to get used to it, and that just becomes, I don't know, I, like I'm, like the character, like kind of just like the experience that you're living in, and so much so that you don't notice it anymore until they get to the point of the change where the train, rather, where it all changes. And... All the 
of a sudden that just felt like I don't know, like everything came together and it like it was like an explosion of just like pleasantness and like it, yeah, well it dropped, but it was like it was just so serene because there had been so much chaos beforehand and so much tension and like I don't know, kind of this feeling of uneasiness. Tension feels right. Yeah. I mean, as as a non-binary person who doesn't very rarely gets clocked as non-binary unless we're in a place where there are pronoun name tags and things like that. I, um, the, the anxiety and the tenseness and the, like, of the, of the first half against the euphoria of the end and the kind of, like, the way it lets you just relax and soothe into it was really um, captured, captured something that I don't know if I have heard dubbed White Hell or not. Breaking away from the fear of taking a piss and then just seeing like the pure joy and energy of accepting what the person is. At least that's what I got from it, towards the, the end part of it, where I saw all the trans people of London as pure energy, rather than just the whole gender-conforming rule that it was the situation. I was surprised that, like, at the reveal that the person was using the bathroom that they didn't identify with. It was so good, I mean, yeah. it was like... Like, I think yeah. that was, yeah. was like... Oh, so, when you're a gender non-conforming person, almost all bathrooms are going to be not, like, as you identify. Like, I have to use the male bathroom all the time. Like, constantly. It's like, you know who you are, but all day you get treated like you're someone else. We're gonna introduce the next piece. The next piece that we are going to talk about is called, it's called The Real Tom Banks. Tom Banks is a gay man looking for sex and romance. Tom has cerebral palsy and uses a light writer along with other modern technology like Skype to communicate. In this piece, we hear Tom's voices using different, different technology to meet men. He uses Grindr and cruisy saunas. This piece is narrated through Tom's words, but was produced by Jesse Cox with sound design by Timothy Nicastri. When this clip starts, we hear Tom's different voices using Skype. Then he starts talking about meeting men. The clip is about four minutes long. And for this, the questions that we would like you to focus on, um, there's, so there's a lot of multiple voices in this piece. What information do the multiple voices give us about communication, representation, language, and voice? How do we all have multiple voices? How does it challenge the listener to hear these different voices? How does it reflect Tom's subjectivity or point of view and amplify the narrative about a dude just trying to get laid? Hello, welcome to Skype call testing service. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. I am, I'm coming back. I'm Tom Banks. I am Tom Banks. Hi, I'm Thomas Banks. If you are able to hear your own voice, then you have configured Skype correctly. Thank you for using the testing service. Goodbye. <laughs> On the internet, no one judges me, which is why I've always talked to people on the internet ever since I was four, 14, because there is no judgment, because no one knows about my disability. When I'm online, I don't tell the guys I chat with that I have cerebral palsy. Some people can be superficial, so if I told them, they wouldn't get to know me before they judge me. I started looking for a boyfriend when I was 16 years old. I sat in the Geelong Library for hours, trawling internet dating sites looking for a guy to spend the rest of my life with. I thought it would be the easiest way to find a boyfriend, but I discovered pretty quickly it wasn't a great way to meet people. I didn't have many friends when I was 16. 
Uh, I had friends when I was at school, but they never invited me out on the weekends to hang out with them. I live 50 minutes out of Geelong on a farm, so it was really hard for me to have much of a social life away from school. I was never invited to any of the teenage parties because no one wanted a cripple there, so I turned to the internet to take some of the loneliness away. I spoke with lots of guys in chat rooms. I don't remember if I told them I had a disability. But I could be whoever I wanted. Hi, I'm Tom. 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 What are you doing? Hopeless romantic. Hopeless romantic. Smiley face. Smiley face. I wear my heart on my sleeve. On my sleeve. But I love the phone. I love the phone. Unique. Unique. Different. Different. Genuine. 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 <laughs> the doctors thought I was going to die when I was born. I was the size of my dad's hand. The doctors at the hospital told my mum and dad that I'd never speak. At school, I had a lot of therapists visit me to help me walk and talk. First, I had to learn the sounds of different letters, then learn how to put them into words. My family could understand me a little bit, but other people couldn't. As I got older, I had to say longer sentences and it was harder for people to understand me. It's really frustrating as I know what I want to say, but I just can't get the words out of my mouth. Hey, y'all know what to do. <laughs> it shows, like, I don't know, like, what this dude goes through, like, how he is portrayed versus what he's actually thinking. Um, and then I like how they portray the internet just as this other world, like, where people are wearing so many masks, you really have no idea what you're... Um, usually, I, in audio, um, I, I've been taught to not layer audio in a way that like makes it hard to understand what's happening. So keeping like maybe background noise, or if I'm translating, uh, if I have a source that speaks another language, speaks Spanish, I'm I like to lay in some of that language, but um, and then lay it under my translation. But I've always been told to keep it kind of down so that you can understand. But but the way that the layering happened here made his struggle like very clear to us. Because it was we had to struggle to hear the many different representations of his voice in the piece. Hi, I'm Tom. 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 What are you doing? Using the internet as like a voice out to the world and like inflection is just not a thing. And I think even in the last couple of seconds of high end on the sort of flipping through, like we don't know that on the other end of the typing. That mm -hmm. I just that could be such a Also the the overlapping um, uh, like you could hear how quickly the um, one of the narrators could say something that he could it took him a lot longer to say, um, which I thought was really evocative. Also, there was something kind of we said along the one voice that I 
imagine he has chosen like okay this is who I'm going to be and we spend the rest of the story hearing him tell us who he wants to be to the people around him his family these people he wants to date and it's, it's a really interesting perspective from him like we're we are hearing from him even if it's not exactly his voice we're hearing it as he mm-hmm. wants us to hear it which is really interesting but these are all the different voices he's tried on until he yeah, the one that he's like, yeah 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 this yeah is the one exactly that's exactly yeah. this is who i want to be right and i really like the laugh in between where it's like like this quite sensuous laugh like yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed that. Like it was just so much joy, yeah, pleasure in that, and and yeah, I don't know. I just really enjoyed that. Because I think like, I wouldn't disagree with them. Like I think the layered identity and self-presentation is like right at the heart of the mm-hmm. piece. But I am, I don't know. I'm still like listening to the whole thing. I'm. So struck by that balance with the voice and the, yeah, also right. that idea of presenting it through the lens of self-presentation and identity allows to do a thing that is erasing his voice to yeah. a certain extent and not inviting a listener to sit with it perhaps for as long as yeah. they mm-hmm. might and so I think yeah I think the like translation stuff doesn't disappear because of the way that it's yeah. that cleverly embodied yeah. But it, it, at least in this example, he makes that decision. It's yeah. not the yeah, exactly. producer, you know, or whoever. That's that's. I, well, I guess we, we don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just I, I I feel like that's what you know we're sort of getting at is 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 how he wants to be represented and. I don't know. But it makes a difference who decides. But I found this a really interesting and important topic because what you say about subtitling people that we don't understand, like it's really, yeah, about, I don't know, cleaning up the sound that we are, yeah, considering as normal or something. So. I am not a typical guy guy. Because I'm different from everyone else. 
which is obviously okay. I don't want to like shove my intention down someone's throat, but I also like, it's sort of scary. What were some of the reactions that you're talking about? Do, uh, well, my, my initial reaction was frustration because I was like, I want to hear Tom Banks's voice. Um, but then I was like, oh, maybe this is a choice because they want me to be upset that I'm not hearing Tom Banks's voice. And then later we hear more of just Tom Banks. And so maybe that was the thing to get me frustrated so that that would be a bigger payoff. Um, but then also like um, liking that we hear the um, actor so quickly because then we're not making assumptions about Tom Banks based off of Tom Banks's voice. So it's just all these different possibilities. Oh. oh. Shama Sheehy in the back. The vice Sorry. queen. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, I just wanted to talk about James's piece for a second because I was so excited when I heard that piece because it gave me a realization about what radio could be. I know that James has a background as a performance artist and I have like a mild failed background as one myself, but there's this, there's this thing that performance art does where you're constantly, like you're using your body as a metaphor and you're kind of like putting it on the line to say something and to help people understand something. And like the kind of radio I'm involved with, people are often like putting their feelings on the line and they're putting their personal relationships on the line, but him like asphyxiating himself or, or whatever you want, like him cutting off his own breath. I just like, I don't, I don't, I thought it was so brave and, and so revolutionary and it just like is making me think about all the things that I could be doing, that we could be doing, um, borrowing from the medium of performance art. Yeah, I'm sweating. I know. <laughs> what are other? Did anyone else have like a, a visceral response to that that piece? That they wanted the EMDR at the very beginning. Yeah. Is that the, the control piece? Yeah. Yeah. I had a really strong reaction to that towards the end, and. I'm a control freak and I just, I actually started crying and it brought up, I've got young children and I'm too much of a control freak with them and particularly my 10 year old and I just, just yeah, that, the, when he started repeating control, control, I must stay, I must be in control, I must stay in control. I just, I've always felt the need. Yeah, it was really, really powerful and I, yeah, I was crying, it was amazing. I say, like um, with that piece, I I I I found I find it um, quite I like um, listening to him repeating that phrase over and over. I find that like weirdly like very intimate, like just like I don't know, just listening to someone like be like, this is the thing I'm doing. I'm like repeating this phrase, and like kind of uncomfortable to listen to in a way where I'm like, ooh, we're being too intimate with each other, like, <laughs> you know, but like. <laughs> I don't not like it, but I do find it like slightly uncomfortable to listen to because for some reason that feels really intimate to me. I have a comment not about James's piece, but about Arlie's piece because when it, first it's very good, um, but when we were looking through the questions, I think the last question was like, when did you feel challenged? How challenged did you feel? And like my reaction to that piece was actually relief that it was like the least challenging piece because it was like one of the only pieces of radio that like spoke directly to my experience and so I think when we ask like how challenging is this piece or how comfortable does this piece make us feel it's also a question of like who is this piece comforting and is it comforting someone who is usually challenged and is it challenging someone who's usually comforted because like that was such a soothing piece to me despite it being so like pressurized in its sound design because it was just like oh finally someone's talking about this thing that I experienced that no one ever talks about and yeah on, on that note like real um finding stories that are about your experience that are not um news reporting about you <laughs> is really exciting um and I think thinking about the visceral reactions that other types of artistic choices can cause I think gives us more opportunities to talk to people, like us as people who have these experiences, to people who are not like us, because we can then um, talk about how this made you feel on a visceral level versus like, how do you perceive me, the storyteller, as a person, and your like, whatever existing preconceptions you may or may not have about me, and vice versa, to things that we listen to that are outside of our experience. 
Hi, this is just a general comment about all the pieces and I really appreciate this. Thanks for showing them to us. Um, you know, in, in any sort of audio industry, uh, we often talk about how you should show, you shouldn't tell, because showing is so much more powerful. And I feel there's a, a lot of great radio out there that does a good job of showing the scene and what's actually happening. What I think these pieces did was uh, show in a different way, um, really show the emotion or the inner struggle of someone. And I think that's just so powerful. Thanks. Um, we were just talking, this, this last piece I found uh, fascinating. I would be curious to hear your thoughts about um, when the narrator was kind of talking over his voice, um, how that really helped build your own dictionary or um, your ability to kind of start understanding what he was saying, even though at first it sounded just like sounds. Were you able to then pick up on smaller words and, and kind of um, empathize with him more? I mean, I think we spent so much, so this piece, so all these pieces that we chose, um, we spent a lot of time listening to and talking about when we did our residency together. And um, part of what, with this piece specifically, so much of it was these these layers of voices. Um, and ultimately, like, the question of, I, I feel like you're asking, like, un about understanding. Um, and I think, I guess, I ask back um, about... Th that desire, like you having that desire, or what is that? Um, what does that about mean? And in that is, you know, you're hearing these other voices, and these are all, these are all the one and the same in a way. I guess is what we talked a lot about, and we were thinking about with these, with these voices and, and these desires to hear them. But also, when you hear the piece in its it's what like 15 minutes. When you hear the piece in its entirety, like you do hear. The beginning, you hear a lot of like sort of Tom's on the voice of the actors, like the online persona, and by the end, you do hear a lot more of Tom's speaking voice. And I did find that it's that I was like able to understand all of the voices by the end. Like you kind of spend time equally with each of them. There's a section where you hear a lot of the um, light writer that he uses to communicate in person. Um, yeah, that's like a big part of the middle section. So so yeah, all of them become really evident. I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's really cool in that like snippet of this piece, this last one, the real Tom Banks that happens is whenever you get the bit of narration that's like people in my family understand me, but other people might not at all. Um, the section after that receives like across uh, the, just that one section. It's um, the least amount of translation or help um, in trying to get uh, communication across. And so it is both a challenge for people that had been like maybe a privileged listener through the whole thing. I was thinking, oh yeah, I can totally understand. Like I'm cool, and realizing that you've been holding that facade in your head. And if you aren't in that place, it gives you a chance to like that build the dictionary. So I think it is really just that one moment lets a lot of different kinds of people engage with the piece in different ways. So yeah, fucking love that one piece. Oh, I just had a th I just had a thought in response to what you just said. I just thought of um, this. Just an idea that I've, I've I just have heard like disability justice activists talk about access intimacy, and I I hadn't really thought before that, that this piece is sort of an exam a way to kind of create like, access intimacy is like when people talk about when people sort of can understand your needs or anticipate them beforehand instead of having to like con constantly explain to able-bodied people like what you need, and I had just never thought that like this piece kind of I don't know sort of reflects that, which is cool. Something that was also just said about this particular piece reminded me of the first one, of like the ability to understand. And I think, you know, that's just a challenge that we have in audio generally in the sense that um, whether people um, have, uh, you know, certain uh, you know, issues with ability or whether it's, um, you know, uh, English as a second language or whatever, kind of access to another language we have like visual aids, like, I mean, whether it be, you know, reading off of like a dating app or interacting with the first narrator's mother, right? Like there are ways of understanding. And so like the, a challenge for us, if we're gonna kind of represent the communities that are, or kind of tell these stories that have um, 
like communication isn't necessarily like a given in like an audio format, like understanding how someone speaks when so much of what we do is about like understanding people's voices to, to kind of, I don't know, I'm just really inspired by the first one and, and this one about how that challenge was overcome in terms of like both allowing that voice to still exist, even if it's in a foreign language or if it's hard to understand because of a disability. And, and I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to it, but this has given me a lot of like ideas and a lot to stew on. And, and I think, um, I don't know, I for one think I have to do better. So thank you for inspiring that. James, you're talking about the first piece, you mean EMDR by James T. Green? No, May -May. Is that, or, oh, you're talking about May May? May May. Oh, got it, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that all the pieces had an interesting amount of uh, like sonic blurring, and they they all, I guess not not uh, defining Cleo so much, but the rest of them had moments where the voice was indistinct, where either the background or the like the sound that was layered on top of it uh, was layered over it in such a way that the words weren't audible or. Uh, or, or not weren't audible, were blurry. Um, or when the multiple voices were all speaking out of at the same time, but slightly out of sync. And there was, like, I think if I were to have a visual representation of that, it would just be like, like when you're looking at something that's, uh, you should be looking through 3D glasses, but you don't have the 3D glasses. So, yeah, I think they were all playing with questions of communication in an interesting way. Um, I think a lot about artists um, outside of audio who have talked about the importance of creating a context for their work. And I think from the works that we just heard, like there are, there, there, they kind of remind me of that concern or something and um, using kind of unintelligibility as a strategy for creating the conditions um, under which the complexities of their perspectives can like live in a normative world that values particular things. Um, and I don't know, it's something I'll think about a lot um, coming out of this session. So thank you for these really thoughtful selections. Thank you. Can't take the credit, it's these incredible <laughs> audio artists. <laughs> like, but yes, thank you. As the mic's coming up, I just wanted to say that like uh, on the topic of like unintelligibility of audio, like I think all these are pieces in their entirety that like the first time I heard them, I was like, oh, I want to listen to that again, like immediately. And like this is the sort of like re repetition of listening to pieces and like deepening, like, I don't know. I just think that with all these pieces that has like been part of my experience and our experience listening to them was like, oh my God, play that again right yeah. as soon as it finishes yeah we're really into the idea that you can you the, the work might ask you to listen to it more than once for it to be understood or that you get i mean the same as like you might return to a book or something exactly. which i feel like sometimes goes against the conventional yeah or like yeah. how that's not that's listening. not like a normative in listening to podcasts or listening to audio yeah. like it, it, it should be and pieces ask that of us I thought all of these were really beautiful and interesting and inspiring, but it's funny that you just said that because I was thinking the whole time, like, I can't wait to go back to these and listen to them by myself because even though this session is a lot supposed to be like, how am I feeling right now? And like, are these pieces making me kind of like feel something in my body? I was very aware of the fact that I was listening in a group and then I was going to have to comment on it at the end and being like, am I going to say something smart? I don't really know. Um, oh, no. And it just made me question like... A sweaty listening experience. Yeah, yeah I sounds, guess it was sounds really sweaty, sweaty to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just made me think about uh, the idea of listening in public versus in private and how much of it is kind of like an intimate thing. And yeah, but I look forward to listening to them again. Yeah. Absolutely. And your headphones. Ling, ling on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I do it. Um, yeah, I sort of, to piggyback on what you said, like, to me, there was so much interplay between my mind and my body in listening to these. Like, the part of me that, yeah, really wanted to understand and that's trying to, like, make sure I, like, really pay attention to exactly what they're saying and, like, know what their experience is um, was like 
happening at the same time as like, but I'm just feeling all these things. Maybe that's the whole point and I don't need to actually understand it. And I don't know if this is gonna make any sense, but um, I had this experience once where I was going to see this Buddhist monk talk and I had seen him speak in smaller venues and he happened to be doing an event in a basketball stadium and um, he was sitting in the far end of the stadium and there's a lot of people in there and he was really quiet and he started talking and people were whispering like, he needs to be louder, like we need to get him to be louder, like they need to give him a microphone. So everyone was so busy talking about that they couldn't hear him, that people weren't reaching to listen to him. And I thought like part of the exercise was like trying to get really quiet to hear him instead of figuring out a better way for him to be louder. I don't know if that makes sense. So it's like there's a reaching that I felt like I was doing in some of the pieces to hear in a different way. Mm. Wow. I think that's like that. Yeah. What a poetic note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.